We've been um, going through the book of Hosea, chapter by chapter, somewhat verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And I kind of want to review for you exactly where we are, bring you up to date, and uh, so we don't lose track of the focus of this passage. The first three chapters move quickly through the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea chosen as a prophet of God, called by God to marry an unfaithful woman, to have children of unfaithfulness, to suffer um, reproach, to suffer in the presence of God's people as a direct example of God's love for His chosen people. Not only the nation of Israel, though that is the most direct application, but also God's people of all time, the church universal. God is faithful. And the first three chapters show us through the living drama that is Hosea and Gomer, God's faithfulness to His covenant people during their unfaithfulness. And then, the four, chapters 4 through 10, Hosea gives these uh, prophecies, these oracles, we might call them, from God. And there's very little progress made. I know that you have maybe grown weary of 4 through 10 because it repeats itself over and over and over. Chapters 4 through 10, Hosea focuses in on the sin of the people of God. The coming judgment of God because of the sin of the people of God. And I know that uh, you may have uh, been almost begging, Oh God, please let us get done with chapter 10. Because I've been promising you that the focus will again return to the bright and shining love of God. And that's what happens in chapter 11. I want you to think about uh, you fathers in the congregation and mothers. Think about your first child. How when that child was born, you doted over that child. I mean, you could have had the ugliest baby in all of the world. And yet to you, that baby is beautiful. Everyone who comes in, you extol the beauty of that baby. It doesn't matter how ugly a baby is. It's mother and father love it, don't they? And as you looked into the face of that child, you thought, I never knew I could love something so quickly at first sight as if it was my own flesh. And then the child grows. And the child begins to coo. And your baby's the first baby to ever babble in the English tongue. You know? I mean, as soon as it says, my, 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 it could be talking, it's talking about you, isn't it, mama? Or da, 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 da. It could just be babbling, but that, that baby's talking about me. Our baby's a genius. It's already speaking the English language at eight months old. We love our children, don't we? And then maybe around ten months to a year, that baby begins to pull and stand and toddle. And you grab its little hands and you give resistance and it pulls and it stands and it walks unbalanced at first, and then fully mobile. And you see another cornerstone, another marked stone of progress in your child's life. And you say, what a beautiful baby. What an intelligent child. What an athletic boy this is. He's going to win a Heisman Trophy. I know it. Nobody's ever done these things. You're proud of that child. But some of you in here, your children have matured past those beginning stages. And they've replaced the joy you had with grief and sorrow. They've broken your heart. That same child who toddled around and cooed now curses you. Now lives in all manner of unrighteousness in front of you, almost in mockery of you as their parent. Your heart is broken. 
You want that child to love the Lord Jesus with all of their heart and soul and mind, and yet it seems all they want is something else, whatever that else is. Some of you in here have suffered under this grief for years. God says, when Ephraim was a child, I held his hands and helped him learn to walk. I love my child. And their payment to me for my love has been unfaithfulness. What I want to tell you today is just like you love your child from the time they're born until the day they die. God has loved you from all eternity. You and I are failures. We're sinners. We're unworthy. And yet our God says, I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. Though you slap at my hand and though you curse me with every breath, I will stretch out my hand and I will call you to myself. That's Hosea 11 in a nutshell. Let's look at it closely. Let's examine this loving God. The title of this message is God's Redeeming Love Overcomes His Righteous Anger. God's redeeming love overcomes His righteous anger. Today, we're going to focus on the sovereign, redeeming love that overcomes God's righteous anger. First of all, we see that God has sovereignly loved His people in the past. He says, Israel was a child. I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. God is recalling for these people in Hosea's day their heritage. God, first of all, lovingly chose Abraham and Isaac out of all the people of the earth. That's what we see in verse 1. God sovereignly chose Abraham. I mean, there was nothing that would make Abraham worthy of God's love. He was an idol worshiper. In Ur of the Chaldees, a wealthy man that went under the trees and the oaks and worshipped every spirit and divined with the witchcraft and offered idols to false gods, offered, offered offerings to false gods and idols. That's who Abraham was. He was like every other man in his society. And yet God one day showed up under the oak trees. Jehovah showed up. And he said, Abram, leave your father's house. Follow me to a land which I will show you when you arrive. What was the reason? What did Abram do to deserve God's love? He didn't do anything. When Israel was a child, I loved him. He didn't stop loving with Abraham. He moved to Abraham's second son, Isaac. Isaac was the second born. He had no right, no claim to the promises that had been given to his father. That was Ishmael's place by birth. And yet God said, you will not receive your blessing through the woman's child, Hagar's child. You will receive the blessing through the promised son, the chosen son, Isaac. Your most beloved son, one and only. God's love continued and it was poured out on Isaac. Why was it poured out on Isaac? Because God sovereignly chose to do it. There was no human reason. Isaac was not preferable over Ishmael. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Old Testament description and we were going to choose the leader of God's people, I think by human standards we would choose Ishmael, a hunter, a strong man. A man's man. A man who bequeathed children who were strong and mighty in battle. And zealous, even. I mean, he had the preferred 
line by human standards, yet God chose Isaac. Why? Because he sovereignly chose him. It was his choice. Nothing Isaac had done. And we see it most clearly in the presentation of Isaac's boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau, the man's man, a hunter, hairy, red-headed, wild almost, uncontrollable. This is the man you would harness, right, God? And you would use him to bring about your people. And God said, no. When they were in the womb, I chose Jacob, not Esau. Why? Because God sovereignly loves whom He chooses. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we looked there last week. I I want to call your attention to three verses in that long chapter where Moses is retelling the love of God for the people of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. This is what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, set apart for the Lord your God, different because of the Lord your God, we might say. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And it, was, and it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel? It was not because... He was more numerous. It was not because He was favorable. He did righteous things. It was not because He deserved it. Paul tells us the answer for this election which happened of Israel. If you turn to Romans chapter 9 now, we see the answer to the question I've posed. Why did God choose Israel? Why does Hosea chapter 1 say, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Maybe it's because he was a good son. Maybe it's because he was a man's man. Maybe it was because he was worthy in some way. And yet in Romans 9, we begin in verse 8. Paul says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what he promised, what the promise said. About this time, this is the promise to Abraham, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Why did God choose Israel? Maybe it was because they were good. Paul says, no. They had done nothing, either good or bad. Why did God choose them? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of His call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why? Did God choose Israel? Why does Hosea 11 verse 1 say, Israel, when he was even a child, I loved him? Because God's purposes are supreme over all things. God has sovereignly loved His people in the past. He set His love on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. Not because they were worthy. Not because they were holy. But because He desired to make them holy. And set them apart to Himself for His own glory. For His own purposes according to His own call. God lovingly passed over these chosen people's idolatry and unrighteousness. Look at verse 2. 
in our text, Hosea chapter 11. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to the idols. God had every right, because He is holy, to bring immediate judgment on the people of Israel. He had every right. If God had wiped them from the face of the earth, no one could have risen and said, that is unjust. I want you to understand, if you're drawing breath at this moment, It is a gift from our holy God. If you have the mental capacity to understand the message of God's Word, it is a gift which is given from our holy God. If you have drawn near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, it is not because you are intelligent. It is not because you are better than the person in the pew next to you. It is not because you are the most talented. It is because our God sovereignly chose that you should love Him according to His purpose. And if you sit today without Christ in that pew, may I simply say, the day draws short and the time is at the door that He would bring His judgment on all of those outside. And so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to plead with you, I'm going to even give you the command of God, repent today, for today is the day of salvation. Our God is holy. If He comes now and strikes wrath and fury on those who have denied Him, none of you will be able to rise and say, it wasn't fair, I deserved one more shot, I didn't understand Understand, God has every right to wipe us from the face of the earth. And yet, because of His love, He has passed over our sin. The more He called them, the more they became idol worshipers. I believe Hosea is putting mouth to the principle that in Egypt... God passed over their sin, didn't He? Each of you, head of household, shall kill one lamb, spotless and without blemish. And you shall sacrifice that lamb and smear its blood over the doorpost of your house. And you shall gather everyone into your home and you shall eat all of that lamb. All of it shall be consumed. You shall eat this supper with your satchel at hand and your robes girded up and your staff ready to leave the land God will this night judge the people of Egypt and all those who do not have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts will fall under the judgment of almighty God God passed over the sins of Israel because he loved them and yet the more he passed over and the more he continued to call them, the more they ran into idolatry. For just a few chapters later in the book of Exodus, after God has performed this mighty miracle of bringing them out of slavery and bondage and oppression and crossed the Red Sea and defeated the greatest army on the face of the earth, while God himself, the Holy One of Israel, touched the mount at Sinai and declared that this is holy ground, in which my, Mo my servant Moses will receive my word to you. At that very moment, they fashioned a golden calf and desired to raise up leaders to go back to Egypt and abandon God. The more God loved them, the more God called them, the more God drew them to Himself, the more they resisted His call, the more they worshipped their idols. The story of the Israelites is not a story of progressive righteousness, but it seems the story of the nation of Israel is progressive ungodliness. The more distinct they should have been, the more like the other cultures they became. But yet God had chosen them. And God loved them. And God passed over their sin. God lovingly raised His people 
as a father raises his children. God's love is not just general. Look at this passage. It doesn't say the Assyrians. I held their hand and helped them learn to walk as a nation. It doesn't say the Canaanites. I nurtured them as a father does his own children and rewarded them from my very hand. No. God's love is very specific. God said, Ephraim, when he was a child, I held his hand. I helped him learn to walk. When he was sick, I healed him. With loving cords, I drew him. God had delivered His people. God had loved His people. God had nurtured His people. God had brought them to be a distinguished people on the face of the earth. And yet, they remained in their idolatry. And the more He loved them, the more they ran from Him. We see that God has sovereignly loved His people in the past. Secondly, we see God sovereignly loves His people today. God not only loved their forefathers... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ephraim. But God loved the people in Hosea's day. His love is not past only. It's present also. God lovingly chose Abraham and Isaac out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And His love endured through their idolatry. As we look at this passage, we see that God's anger is righteous And it is all-consuming. Look with me at verse 5. Now remember, the first four verses, God loved them. God drew them. God called them. God Himself raised them as a father raises His children. And then verse 5, God's anger is shown. He says, I'm not sending you back to Egypt. You're not going to be slaves to the Egyptians again. I'm going to send you to Assyria. Egypt was a bad place. There was a lot of oppression. But if you think about it, God's people were allowed, allowed even under the hand of oppression and slavery, to multiply. They went in a mere 70 and they left over 2 million. God says, I'm not taking you back to Egypt. This will be no gentle reproach. No simple warning. I'm sending you to Assyria. The fear that must have been struck in their hearts. The Assyrian people of all the people on the face of the earth during Hosea's day were bloodthirsty. They were the most vile of the vile. Often when we think of crucifixion, we think of the Romans. And it is true that the Romans perfected the art of crucifixion. It was under the Roman Empire that crucifixion reached its peak. But it was the Assyrians who began the practice of crucifixion. Not by driving nails through the wrist and the feet so that the victim and the sinner might suffer. No, the Assyrians whittled down trees to a point and they stuck their victims, impaled their victims on a cross of wood for the whole world to see. He said, I'm not taking you to Egypt where you're going to prosper even under the oppressive hand of your rulers. I'm sending to Syria. A fear that must have run through their veins. Assyria was not a people who came to compromise and bring submission. Assyria was a people who came to conquer and utterly destroy. We could say they were some of the first to practice genocide. They would move into a region and they would burn the city. They would rape the women. They would behead the children. They would even smash them 
on rocks. They were brutal. They were brutal. And this loving God in verses 1 through 4 is now saying, Assyria is going to be your king. God's anger is righteous and it is consuming. God's anger is kindled against His people because of their continued lack of submission. Verses 5 through 7 give us the account of an Assyrian attack on the people of the northern tribes of Israel. They're going to come in with sword and rage against the city and consume it and tear down its gates and devour it because of the councils. And though they call out to me, I will not hear them. And then the last verse of chapter 11 connects with verse 7. There's a few verses in between, but chapter 11, verse 12, and the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, most connect with verses 5 through 7. And I'm going to hopefully bring into clear view why he separates these two things. The first audience receiving this pronouncement is going to face judgment from Assyria. And it sounds as if it will be complete and utter. They will be wiped from the face of the earth. Look what he says in verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. You say, I don't deserve God's judgment. Yes, you do. Because you are a liar. All of us are liars. We have the bad habit of saying, those who molest children, those who walk into civic centers and kill innocent people pursuing their citizenship, those who act out atrocities on the people of God in the Sudan and in China, they deserve God's wrath. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, along with murderers and rapists and adulterers and thieves, You can place alongside those people, those who have lied and those who are disrespecting of their parents. We deserve God's wrath. If God wiped this church from the face of the earth, it would not be unjust. If He killed all of us, it would not be unjust because we are sinners and we deserve God's wrath. Ephraim has lied and he's full of deceit. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. A reference to Assyria. The wind is that wind of judgment. And now we're going to feed. Israel is going to feed on Assyria's judgment. They're going to carry oil off to Egypt. I mean, listen to how bad the oppression is in Hosea's day. God's people lived under the bondage of the Pharaoh for over 400 years. They were forced to build the pyramids in submission to a foreign king. They were not allowed to worship in freedom. They were, among all the people of the earth, the most oppressed. And yet Hosea says... The Assyrians are so awful and the judgment that's coming on Israel is so terrible. They're going to go with their possessions to Egypt and try to make a deal with the Pharaoh. The best we can hope for, is what Hosea is saying, is that the Egyptians will take us back and only make us build pyramids. God... In his indignation and wrath is justified because we are sinners. The the top to the bottom, the murderer to the liar, and the rebellious, we are all sinners. Verses 5 through 7 and verse 11 through 12 and, and the first verse of chapter 12 connect together. And the intermittent verses are the heart of this message. God will sovereignly love His people in the future.
If you were hoping for a message of hope, we've arrived at the right place. God said, I loved Israel when he was a child. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I don't think Hosea understood what he was writing in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that in fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus was called back from Egypt to Israel. Hosea was writing to an audience of Israelites, and he was saying, God has loved you from the beginning, and he has drawn you out of Egypt. And yet the deeper meaning of this passage applies to you and me. God loves his people, and he sent his son that they might be saved from his wrath. Listen, Jesus Christ did not burst onto the scene in the New Testament unannounced. In a passage like this, we see the prophecy of God fulfilled. Even through the mouth of Hosea, we see the prophecy fulfilled. This passage applies to the people of Israel in Hosea's day, but even more applies to the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and all those who will find refuge and salvation in Him. May we stop reading the Old Testament as if it is merely an account of the history of God dealing with people in the past. The Old Testament is inspired by God for teaching and training in righteousness so that we might be built up into the complete man and joined to Jesus Christ in salvation. That's what the Apostle Paul said about the Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. What Scripture, Paul? Not the New Testament. The Old Testament. And so we come to a place like Hosea 11, and we see a verse like Hosea 11.1, and the, the holy writer, the Spirit of God says, Although the dark path you are on hides my face from you, Never forget I love you and I will redeem my people. I will bring my people from slavery to freedom. I will save my people from the coming wrath through my son. God warns of his coming judgment, yet he offers hope in Jesus Christ. So, if you've been with me for chapters 4 through 10, you might have mistakenly thought, I've got to be a better person. No. 4 through 10 should convince us we can't be better. We can't be good. We can't be pleasing to God. We deserve His wrath. If you've been with me from chapters 4 through 10, you've been waiting for this message, and that is as bad and as awful as your sin is, and as righteous as God would be to wipe you from the face of the earth, He sent His Son. That through His Son, His righteous wrath might be consumed, and His blessing and grace might be poured out on His children. This is the message of the Gospel, pure and unadulterated Please don't leave Grace Fellowship saying, I'm going to obey God's law and be saved. No, you'll burn for eternity because you can't keep the law. You've already broken it. From your birth you broke it. And you deserve His righteous wrath. And yet He consumed His righteous wrath in the flesh of His Son and resurrected that Son to new life that we might have eternal life through Him. Oh, then we might understand the fullness of our salvation. That we might really truly understand God's sovereign love for the future. Now let's look at this verse by verse. Phrase by phrase. I want you to see this. God's love 
is passionate. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I said if you were a father who had had a rebellious child, a mother who had had a rebellious child, you would understand today better than the rest of us. Because that same child that God raised up rebelled. That same child you raised up now has rebelled. And in your prayer life, I'm certain, and in your frustration, you have said, I'm done with them. I'm finished. I'm going to consume them. Only to immediately say, how can I give you up? How can I turn my back on you? You are my child. I love you. God is saying, my love, my love endures even as you are unfaithful. My love endures even when you deserve my wrath because God is passionate over His people. We I know have been trained from medieval theology to believe that God is without any passion. But please understand, He is without man's passion, but He is not without passion. God is passionately in love with His people. God loves His people to the point that He would die on a cross For their sin. God is not some cold, dead idol in heaven saying, I am great. I have provided. I gave you everything. You are my people. God is a loving Father who from heaven weeps for His people. Who burns with indignation and jealousy over His people. Who says, for I so love this world that I would send my son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God is a God not controlled by passion, but possessing passion. He loves us. He is not mechanical. He has real passion. God's love is passionate in verse 8a. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? God's love is restraining. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? Genesis 14, verses 1 through 2, tell us that these two cities were along the same valley as Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God consumed them with His wrath... Sodom and Gomorrah, he also consumed these two cities. God is saying, I love you passionately. How can I destroy you the way I destroyed these two cities utterly? How could I utterly destroy you? Because my love for you is so strong and so pure. God's love is passionate. God's love is restraining. God's love is redeeming. Verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he shall change his mind. Has he not spoken and then brought it about? Based on that text, the people in Hosea's day think the other shoe is about to fall. They are about to be judged because God has said they will be judged. And yet the way Hosea applies that text is to say God will keep His promise to His people from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to the sons of Jacob and all their descendants to all who believe in Jesus Christ who is the true Israel. I will not consume you because I will keep my word and I will keep my promise. No matter how vile and unrighteous you are, I will not wipe you off the face of the earth. 
the application of the text would seem to be God will destroy us utterly. And yet, he says, the application is God will not break his promise to his people. How do we know he will not break his promise to his people? Because of his character. The Holy One is in your midst. And I will not come to your city in wrath. How do I know that God will not consume me because of my sin? Simply because I have placed trust in his Son Jesus Christ. How can I be sure? that I will be saved from the coming wrath of God. Because of God's character, you can be sure. A holy one is in your midst. God's holiness is not an attribute. It is the attribute of God. When you want to define God, if you leave this out, you are not defining God of the Bible. He is totally distinct from all other creation. God is the one and only being. Everything else is becoming, as R.C. Sproul likes to put it. He is the one being. That means He never changes. Therefore, if He says, I will save all of those who come to me through the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ, that promise cannot fail. Because His character is a sure witness. He is not a man. He does not lie. God Is holy. I know we've talked about holiness. Believe it or not, we didn't plan this. He is, Aaron has rightly defined holiness. But may I just simply say to you we are not dealing with a mere man, we are not under the wrath of a fellow creature. We are under the wrath and judgment of the all-consuming God of heaven and earth. He is holy. It means He is unique. He is in a category to Himself. He is not like anything else. And so what I'm saying to you, if you're lost today and you think, well... I've got to repay him for my failures and my sin. It's hopeless. Everything you do will be a judgment against you. It will only kindle his wrath against you even hotter. And your experience of eternal separation from him will be all the more strong and all the more unbearable. can't repay him because he is holy and you and I are unholy and so everything we do is unholy and everything he does is holy the holy one is in your midst I will not come and consume your city with my wrath I have the right to do it I'm going to send you into deportation in Assyria. But I will not utterly destroy you. Because I'm not a man. I'm not controlled by my passions. I'm not controlled by my wrath. Because God is holy, His attributes are parallel. Okay? God is complete love. And God is complete 
righteousness. And God is completely holy. And God is completely gracious. And God is completely just. And God is completely... He is parallel. He's not partially any of these things. He is completely these things. His wrath is not consumed in the sense that it goes away. It is consumed in the sense that He sent one to bear His wrath. And because that one has bore His wrath, now His love is displayed through that one to us. And now we reach the pinnacle of Hosea's message and this message as we close. God's love simultaneously with His righteousness is displayed in Jesus Christ. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west and from the east out of Egypt and from Assyria. And they will return to their homes, declares the Lord. When will this, when did this prophecy become reality? That's the hope of this message. This prophecy became reality when Jesus Christ became God incarnate. When He lived a perfect and sinless life. When He kept and fulfilled all of the laws. When He died on the cross. When He was resurrected and ascended. This prophecy was fulfilled. There is no future gathering in the city of Jerusalem. We are now gathering in the city of Jerusalem. We are now living in the day that we will be planted in our homes. May I explain this text? They shall go after the Lord and He will roar like a lion. My son came from Egypt. God would say to Israel. And at the right time, he began his ministry with this message. Roaring like a lion, he said to Israel, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. God was fulfilling his word to his people in the Old Testament. When his son was born and when his son began to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And the enemy of God roared like a lion seeking whom he might devour. We first see him roaring in Matthew chapter 4. When this son, this true Israel, Jesus Christ was in the desert and being tempted by Satan himself. The lion was roaring And the line of Judah roared louder by saying, Get behind me, Satan. We see this prophecy fulfilled when rising in the synagogue at Nazareth, he took the scroll of Isaiah and said, This scripture is fulfilled in your presence today. The, the The lame will walk, the blind will see, those in prison will be set free. The roar of the lion was going forth. We see this scripture fulfilled when Jesus Christ went to the cross and hanging on the cross bore our transgressions and carried our sin. This scripture was fulfilled when Jesus Christ from the cross said, Father, forgive them. For they don't have any idea what they're doing. You see, the line of Satan, Satan is depicted as a line also, and he roars. Like Assyria, like Egypt, he roars. And yet the line of Judah roars louder, drowning out his opposition. 
at the cross, God shackled his opponent. Satan in our day no longer deceives the nations. The gospel is going forth. Christ is building his church. The line of Judah is roaring in this nation and China and India and over the face of the earth as the gospel goes forward. He is roaring. This message of hope and love is being preached and people are being saved and brought to their homes forevermore. You might say, Pastor... I just don't know if I can buy that. I mean, I kind of see what you're saying, but I don't really, I don't really think that's it. I think there is a future dwelling in the land of Israel. And there is a future for those ethnically Jew. I would simply say, if that be the case, Christ is not the sinner. The Jews are the sinner. The Jews had no right. And God gave them rights. The Gentiles had no rights. And God gave them rights. How did He do this? How did He make two people one through the lion who roared and gathered his children from the west, who called them from Egypt and from Assyria and from the ends of the earth, not to a city made with hands, the city of Jerusalem in Palestine, but to the city of heaven, Jerusalem, which is coming. God fulfills his word. The hope of salvation is not a future kingdom on the earth, but the kingdom that's already at hand. The door is open for you. The door is open for you through Jesus Christ. His wrath, we might say, from Hosea 4 to Hosea 10, was poured out on His Son whom He loved, that He might save those who believe. That He might make two houses one, that He might make two flocks one, that he might make the natural olive grafted in with the unnatural, the Jew and the Gentile, and repopulate the kingdom for his own glory. May we understand the deeper meanings of these passages, for it is in these passages we see most clearly the fulfillment of the passage which says in Revelation, the kingdom of our God. The kingdom of our God has consumed the kingdom of man. The quote from the psalmist, the kingdom of man has become the kingdom of our God, repeated in Revelation as the kingdoms coming to Christ. If you are not in Christ, you have no hope. You can't do it. Your only hope is Christ. Let's pray. Father, the Holy One of Israel.